Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not with 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Double Elvis. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that didn't go exactly as planned. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Six would be the number of nights per week he led his band, the Warlocks, on stage before his bandmates turned on, tuned in, and dropped his old-school blues vibe. Another three would be the number of years it took merry prankster Ken Kesey to perfect his acid tests, creating a close community of self-declared freaks that soon counted Pigpen and his bandmates among them. Six more would be the number of months the Warlocks, rechristened as the Grateful Dead, would serve as house band for those acid tests, a ritual that Pig refused to take part in. Another five would be the number of bandmates he'd have to tether to reality as they threatened to leave the ground high on one of their pre-show LSD trips. And seven would be the number of years he had left to live when he realized that the band he led was slowly marginalizing his contributions as the world around them took a turn for the strange. All totaling 27. On this, our second episode of season five, Merry Pranksters, Acid Rituals, Tethered to Reality, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
February 20th, 1961, Palo Alto, California. The two-door Studebaker Golden Hawk ripped through the quiet evening. The clock on the dash neared 2 a.m. The car gripped the pavement tightly, trucking along, pushing 90 miles per hour, bending sharp corners, and the tires barely stayed on the road. The driver held the wheel loosely as the radio sang out. It was the end of a long night full of heady conversation and too many beers to count. The three passengers, too drunk to notice or too drunk to care, were chatting away, ignoring the increased speed of the Studebaker. And besides, the driver seemed to have it under control, until he didn't. The car approached a turn that would have been tough at half the speed, and the Studebaker struggled to make the tight corner. And then, the world flipped upside down. All four tires of the 3,000-pound vehicle left the concrete. The Studebaker rolled into a field below, rattling the passengers around like tumbling dice about to be tossed onto a craps table. And like craps, life and death had just become a game of chance. Glass shattered, metal contorted, and shrieked. Two of the car's passengers, Jerry Garcia and Alan Trist, were violently hurled from the car. So was driver Lee Adams. Then there was nothing, just darkness. Jerry pushed himself off the ground. His ears were ringing. His shoulder throbbed with intense pain. His head was pounding, his eyes blurry. He looked down and feeling the chill of the midwinter evening, he noticed his shoes were missing. Where the hell was he? And where the hell were his shoes? The last thing he remembered was getting tossed through the windshield. Shit, that was about all he remembered. He scanned the open field around him, the lights of nearby Stanford Hospital illuminating the scene. And then he saw it. The tragedy of that night would stay with Jerry for the rest of his life. Jerry Garcia's life had been punctuated with tragedy from the very beginning. He was born in 1942, and after an idyllic first three years, everything went sideways. He lost the top two knuckles of his right middle finger at four years old when his older brother accidentally chopped them off with an ax. Jerry moved a log away from the chopping block as a joke right as his brother brought the sharp end down. Then Jerry lost his father at five. He essentially lost his mother when she subsequently sent him and his finger-chopping brother to live with their grandparents. He was forced back from his hometown when his mother remarried, relocated, and then brought her sons back into her home. The family bounced around to a few more towns in the following years. He had trouble in high school, brushes with the law, a stint in the army that ended with more accounts of AWOL than colors and a tasteful tie-dye. Jerry was wayward, jaded, and at just 18, he'd already seen too much. He didn't know where he belonged. And the only other constant beside trouble in Jerry's life was music. His father, a clarinet player and band leader, and later his grandmother, always ensured his home was filled with an eclectic variety of music. Big band, old-timey folk, country, gospel, bluegrass, classical. He and his brother both dug rock and roll that exploded in the 1950s, and Jerry had been consistently improving his skills on guitar since he first picked one up at 15. He'd also been moved by the freewheeling nature of the beat generation, especially Jack Kerouac's On the Road, a novel that he absorbed so deeply it became part of his identity. Once Jerry's short stint in the army came to an end, he decided to go on an adventure, be someone else, somewhere else, just like Sal Paradise. Jerry landed in Palo Alto, 
lived in his car for a while, got hip to the scene, and made some connections with local musicians. He then secured a room at the Chateau, a kind of boarding house for transient bohemians, artists, musicians, and writers. He was welcome there and, for a time, had managed to avoid trouble or misadventures. Avoided them until that evening in 1961 when he was thrown through the windshield of a Studebaker doing 90 on Junipero Serra Boulevard. Jerry snapped back to the present. The night was eerily silent. Not 50 yards away from him was the shell of the 1956 Golden Hawk he had just been riding shotgun in. The car was mangled, unrecognizable, it was a mess, and the reality of the situation hit Jerry like a ton of bricks. The third passenger, Jerry's close friend, Paul Spiegel, didn't make it out of the car alive. Paul was just 16 years old. The event completely rearranged Jerry's perspective on the world. It laid bare the fragility of life in the most jarring way possible, smashing his already fractured world into a thousand little pieces. He wasn't sure how he would ever rearrange them. He took refuge in music. For the next three years, Jerry performed in 11 different bands around Palo Alto. He also became a father to a daughter, which complicated things. And suddenly there was another mouth to feed and Jerry, committed entirely to his music, needed a steadier paycheck than bluegrass gigs. He found work as a music teacher at Dana Morgan's music store in Palo Alto. It was at Dana Morgan's that Jerry first met a 14-year-old whose appearance was constantly in such a state of disarray that everyone called him Pigpen. Jerry thought it was funny that the store hired an unclean kid to keep the place clean, but Pig could give two shits about pushing a broom around. He'd rather spend his time mining advice from the new music teacher with the fucking wild car crash story. Pig was transfixed by Jerry's work on the fretboard. Pig quickly became Jerry's disciple. It wasn't just a one-way street. While Jerry taught Pig guitar, Pig taught Jerry the blues. He played Jerry his collection of records, the deep cuts, those ancient holy texts. Soon they were playing live together, parties, small shows, even as bandmates in some local groups. One of those groups, of course, was Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, started right there at Dana Morgan's on a fateful New Year's Eve. After they found Bob Weir, Pig convinced the group to go electric. They picked up Bill Kurtzman, who also taught at the store and had played with Pig and the Zodiacs on drums. And as they were using Dana Morgan Sr.'s music store as a practice place, they diplomatically brought Dana Morgan Jr. on as a bassist. He was nobody's first choice, but he could hold down the low end well enough. As Jerry would put it years later, the band now known as the Warlocks had one strong suit, Pig Pen. Pig had it, the deep knowledge, the look, the vibe. And the only problem was that Pig was shy. Performing wasn't really his thing. Jerry pushed Pig out of his comfort zone to take lead vocals because that rough growl of his was the best voice in the band and Pig didn't put on airs when he took the mic. He wasn't scholarly like the rest. He lived what he sang. He gave the warlocks gravitas, legitimacy. And Jerry's encouragement alone didn't give Pig total confidence. Cheap wine and beer were of clutch. After a few kind words from Jerry and a few sips of something high-proof, Pigpen was uninhibited. He held court at the center of the band on stage, belting out Slim Harpo's King Bee or Rufus Thomas's Walking the Dog like he'd been singing them his entire life. All the fractured pieces of Jerry's world were reassembling themselves fast. The band ditched Dana Morgan's son for Phil Lesh, a better bass player. Eventually, they'd ditch their name for a better one, too. 
and they played their asses off six nights a week, five sets a night, and their popularity grew. If you knew, you knew. The band with the street-savvy bluesmen fronting a bunch of noodly music nerds was where it was at. Everyone knew it, especially those who were turning on and tuning on. But the ones with the keys to the magic bus would soon take the band on the most important trip of its life. Ron Pigpen McKerney didn't know it then, but he'd be getting off at one of those next stops. What about you, Ken? You want to go? The neighbor was staring into his eyes, almost staring him. But was this actually dangerous enough to be a dare? A government-mandated test? No way. So why the hell did Ken Kesey feel so spooked? The neighbor tapped his foot, and Kesey remained silent. They'll pay you 75 bucks. I know you need it. He did need it. It was 1959, and Ken Kesey had moved from Oregon to just outside the Stanford campus settling in a lively bohemian student section. Kesey was at the school on an academic fellowship, studying creative writing. Financial aid of any kind was needed, but still, he was hesitant. And the neighbor continued his pitch. It's perfectly safe. They use it on patients all the time, alcoholics mostly. This thing is gonna be known as a miracle drug in a few years. Kesey was worried about how it might affect his Olympic training and his writing. He'd never even been drunk before, but $75 to sit in a room for a couple of hours? Too good to pass up. Fuck it, Kesey said he was in. The room was bare, except for a handful of hospital beds. Kesey sat patiently on a mattress. Was something supposed to be happening? He felt completely normal. A tape recorder sat in front of him. He was supposed to speak into it and record his experiences. The tape recorder's spool just spun, waiting for Kesey to describe what he saw in the room. Kesey studied the white walls of the room, but nothing. And then, nothing slowly turned into everything. The lights above him filled the room with a warm glow. The glow evolved into different colors. He rubbed his eyes, but that only made the colors multiply, and then mutated into hexagons, pentagons. The walls of the room began to bend. The clock's tick fell to an impossible rate, and the tape recorder turned into a toad. Bats cascaded from the lights. He heard music, and then he saw music. Kesey's mind rushed in a thousand different directions as the curtain of the world was pulled back. Shit was wild. As part of his participation in government-funded testing, Ken Kesey had just experienced his first trip on lysergic acid thiethylamide, AKA LSD. He returned the following Tuesday, and then every Tuesday after that for nearly half a year. During this time, Ken Kesey would test, amongst other drugs, psilocybin, mescaline, and amphetamines. But none of them compared to LSD. That was the one. Kesey felt like he had found a buried treasure. He was obsessed. He called his experience beautiful and overwhelming. He wanted to take it with him, share it with his friends, share it with anyone who might need to see what he'd seen, to rattle their brain out of the monotony of life and get a vision beyond the mental and physical limitations of the mind and the body, to see the truth. Unfortunately, the doctors running the experiments weren't in the business of sending home leftovers. So Kesey got creative to score more doses. 
he got a part-time gig in a psych ward, a gig that would inspire his classic novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Through his new employment, he was able to obtain plenty of LSD. It would begin building a community of like-minded adventurers, those ready to traverse the innermost parts of their minds and the outermost parts of the universe. Albert Hoffman, a Swiss scientist, first synthesized LSD in 1938. But it wasn't until five years later that he accidentally dosed himself with a small amount and things got funky. Funky enough that just a few days later, he conducted a real experiment with 10 times the amount and tripped the fuck out. Hoffman thought he was dying, but a quick visit from a physician confirmed no physical abnormalities. When Hoffman came down, he knew he had stumbled on something important. Over the next two decades, the effects of LSD would be studied in clinical research. Psychologists prescribed it to treat a variety of ailments, anxiety, depression, and addiction. LSD was no secret, it wasn't even illegal. Author Aldous Huxley was a very public supporter, as was Harvard professor Timothy Leary. LSD helped treat Hollywood legend Cary Grant's psychological issues stemming from childhood trauma and influenced the writings of Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. During the same time, the world was also dead center in the middle of the Cold War. The distrust, paranoia, and concern about mass destruction had reached its peak. There were rumors the communists had discovered a way to control the minds of prisoners and operatives. The United States, which was already racing Russia to the moon, couldn't afford to fall behind again. So the CIA started an illegal human experimentation program called MKUltra, in which they identified LSD as potentially important and useful, and began testing the drug in hospitals, prisons, and psychiatric institutions. Notorious Boston gangster Whitey Bulger was a participant while incarcerated at Alcatraz. He later claimed that because of ensuing nightmares, he was only ever able to sleep for a few hours at a time ever since 1957. And the government also opened up testing to volunteers, which included college students, college students like Ken Kesey. Once Kesey finished the tests, he was, as the saying goes, turned on. He turned on many of his Stanford classmates too. And when Cuckoo's Nest blew up, Kesey spread the wealth. Kesey, his family, and his circle of precocious pals, now referring to themselves as the Merry Pranksters, moved out to La Honda, a quiet place in the woods about an hour from downtown San Francisco. In La Honda, they could stretch their legs and their minds, a place to search for a peaceful, meaningful existence away from the fear and paranoia of the so-called real world. Kesey also bought a school bus, which already had the basic necessities of travel, and the pranksters covered it in intricate patterns, shapes, and symbols, every color of the rainbow and bright neon, and named it the Further Bus. They took the show on the road, traveling the country, driving coast to coast with Kesey at the wheel, spreading their message at conventions, presidential debates, public parks, looking for anyone who was up for a new experience. But mostly, Kesey and the pranksters continued to experiment in La Honda. They put up flyers all around the peninsula, promoting parties at their homes, and they wanted to find like-minded individuals, and their circle quickly grew. One of those flyers caught the eye of Phil Lesh. Phil, Jerry, and Bob were no strangers to LSD, but when they got to the pranksters' party, it was safe to say they'd never seen anything like it. Thoughts flowed freely. People did what they wanted. No lines to cross, no limits, only total freedom. Something important was happening out in the woods. They could feel it. 
They were all kindred spirits on the same wavelength. But there was one uniting force that was noticeably absent from the party. Music. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate but not with 80 acres farms their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled going from farm to store in days not weeks they stay fresher for longer in your fridge my salad lasts all week long which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Ron Pigpen McKernan could feel his influence waning. He held onto the microphone in a death grip. Like if he didn't let go, then he'd always be in control. Like if he tugged hard enough on the mic cable, he'd pull the rest of the band safely back down to the ground and back to reality. But he knew deep down that he was already losing them. He lurched over the microphone, his stomach poked out from behind his shirt buttons. Wine belly again. He kept howling the blues, raw power. The rest of the warlocks were operating on a different kind of power. And not just Bob Weir's country and folk influences, though the band was developing a more rounded set list that went beyond Pig's personal passions. But offstage too, Jerry, Phil, Bob, and Bill spent their days exploring the cosmos, listening to music and talking literature while loaded to the gills on LSD. Pig didn't partake. So in 1965, when Pigpen walked into the Big Beat Club, a pizza joint by day and one of the peninsula's first rock clubs by night, 
he didn't have the same experiences that everyone else had. To Pig, the strobe lights were just bright as shit and hurt his eyes. And to the others, they pulsed from the darkness like a siren, said welcome visitors from near and far, peek further into this abyss, descend further into this madness. White sheets covered the club's walls. Short films were projected onto the blank canvas. And just off center in the room sat a teepee. Images of Native Americans were projected on its canvas from the inside, haunting, ghost-like. And the artist was present with an explanation for what the piece was supposed to mean, but like every other sensory experience in the room, ultimately its meaning was subjective. Couches inhabited by saucer-eyed characters in colorful clothing and painted faces lined the walls. Dancers twirled into the dull glow of the projectors, spinning with indifference. The music came from everywhere, the walls, the floor, the ceiling. It didn't just vibrate the room, it melted the room. And the dancers weren't dancing to the music, they weren't listening to the music, they were feeling the music. On top of the music, a voice bellowed through a megaphone, imploring the attendees to get freaky, release sanity. And more voices grunted through the microphone, out at the PA and the sounds of someone moaning, then screaming, then laughing. And the source of the sound seemed to be a man standing on a very low stage at one end of the room, flanked by speakers, tape recorders, and an organ painted with the brightest neon known to man. Ken Kesey began to recite music as the oppressive flashing lights continued. And the crowd swayed together. The entire room felt like it was breathing. Everyone there was high as fuck and the music droned on from the opposite end of the room. Pigpen thought it was all a little too weird, a little too far out, and maybe you had to be dosed to truly appreciate it. It didn't matter. He still got up on that stage, surrounded by all this freak flag insanity, and led the warlocks through another set. The group was a mishmash of sizes, shapes, styles, and vibes, a perfect reflection of the scene laid out in front of them. And they tried to hold it together, and they really did, but after tripping on LSD all day long, you couldn't just pretend to ignore what you had seen and experienced. It was hard to play straight when you still weren't thinking straight. The Warlocks had figured out how to perfectly time their trips with their sets throughout 1965 while playing five sets a night, six nights a week, at the Inn Room, a divorcee bar 20 minutes south of San Francisco, designed specifically for drinking away heartache and inhibition. While Pig hung tight to his beloved blues, the rest of the band was vibing out to John Coltrane. And they were enamored with how Train and his band took short, simple structures and stretched them out into longer pieces, creating fascinating textures and improvisations. They endeavored to translate that idea and that energy to their music on the stage. And they did quickly find, however, that acid and the in-room bruisers were a terrible combination. Much to Pigpen's relief, that meant they had to come down well before they began to perform. While the effects of the hallucinogens may have worn off by the time they kicked into their first song, their altered perspective did not. Simple songs became sprawling, auditory expeditions and were at times impossibly loud, often clearing a great percentage of the club's patrons out of the building. Pigpen vamped on, but he could see his band evolving right before his eyes, his decidedly undilated pupils. The blues weren't being left by the wayside yet, but they were fast becoming less important. Shortly after they amicably parted ways with the inn room, the warlocks discovered that they weren't the only warlocks. Another band already cut a record under that same name. And meanwhile, 
a New York band called the Warlocks would also ditch the name for something even more idiosyncratic, the Velvet Underground. But the West Coast Warlocks needed to come up with something a little more unique. On a rainy afternoon, Phil invited the boys over to his place for a brainstorm session. Jerry, who showed up late, high on DMT, sat down on Phil's couch, opened a 1955 edition of the Funkin' Wagnall's new Practical Standard Dictionary, Britannia World Language Edition, and let his finger fall on the first page that presented itself. The Grateful Dead. A motif for an old folktale about a hero who happens upon an anonymous corpse who has not been given a proper burial because it owed a debt. The hero takes care of the corpse's debt, not expecting to be rewarded in return. Soon after, the hero finds himself in desperate need of help, and the spirit of the corpse comes to his rescue. What goes around comes around, dig that. The Warlocks now had their new name. And a short time later, the Grateful Dead were made the resident house band for Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters' legendary acid tests. It would spend the next six months helping to light the fuse of the counterculture that was about to explode into the mainstream. Most of the Grateful Dead's members took the tests themselves, spending many nights on stage sliding in and out of time and space while playing sets that the crowds gathered. One member of the group, however, opted out. Pigpen was all set buzzing on booze. He formed a habit early, at 13 years old, and never even considered getting on a wagon to fall off of. He came to see alcohol as an integral part of the blues, and so it was an integral part of him. The rest of the dead never judged him for it, so Pig never passed judgment for the trips they took. He did, however, need to serve as an anchor for the band as he did that night back at the Big Beat Club. After the band set, Pig remained in the corner of the club until the bottle of Soko he was sipping from disappeared along with his inhibitions. Pig sunk into his chair, exhausted. The trip was about to get even stranger. the keys on his Vox electric piano. Come the fuck on, guys. The group was beginning to spin off in different directions. A few more minutes and they'd be lost to the cosmos for the rest of the evening. Pigpen grit his teeth. He punctuated the next few changes in the song with sharp staccato hits, giving the groove a heavy blues vibe. The band fell behind it for a few measures and then started off in another tripped out direction, improvising something that didn't resemble the blues at all. Pig tried to pull them back again, but it didn't matter. Sensory overload was right in front of them. The lights, the dancers, the colors, the voices rambling on over the PA about God knows what and the acid, always the acid. These guys were on Saturn, Christ. Pig even had to chew out Alzi Stanley, AKA Bear, before the show for taking too long to set up their gear. Bear was deep in the thralls of paranoia, thinking Ken Kesey might be trying to control his mind. Pig had told them, he told all of them over and over again, take as much as you want, but hold it together on stage. He wasn't about to be responsible for freaking out an entire room of saucer-eyed weirdos once the band started tweaking. Yet here they were, 
and the goddamn pranksters in the PA kept yelling out over the music incessantly. Then Pig started growling at a rap over the song, attempting to overpower the voices. It only resulted in some bizarre call and response that did nothing but make the trip more intense. If he couldn't overpower the room, then maybe he could tether the band to reality. He caught Jerry's eye. Jerry was the one Pig really needed. If Pigpen was the engine of the dead, Jerry was steering the car. And the pranksters didn't call him Captain Trips for nothing. Pig and Jerry had a connection, a way of communicating through the music. He just hoped Jerry was still capable of accessing that wavelength in his current state. Pig barked out a few more chords and mercifully caught Jerry's attention. Once he had Jerry, it became easier. One by one, Pig reeled them in, keeping them straight enough and tight enough to at least finish the set. Sometime later, after the band had finished playing and it started milling about in the crowd, Pig was in his usual position, set up in a corner with a bottle of Southern Comfort. It wasn't hard to see what was happening. Not just the next show, everything. The LSD, the pranksters, the scene, the obsession with experimenting with sound. Why couldn't they just vamp on the 145 and keep it simple? Pig took another long pull from the bottle. The dead were already not the same band they once were. Pig's beloved blues had become marginalized, just incidental transition music from one spaced out jam to the next. Slim Harpo never had to deal with this shit. Pig tipped the bottle up once again. How long could this possibly go on? And there was no way this was sustainable. The test had to end at some point, and maybe then Pig would get to play his music again, properly. But he'd soon find that things would never really be the same. This wasn't a phase for the dead, but what they were doing was laying the foundation for the group's philosophy, a philosophy that would lead them to numerous decades of experimentation and exploration of both music and illicit drugs. The band wouldn't play just the blues, they wouldn't play just anything. The dead were becoming a living, breathing organism that responded to whatever environment they were in, or whatever vibe they encountered. Pig drained the rest of his southern comfort and stared at the empty bottle. As the sweet whiskey coursed through his body and gave him a warm embrace, Pig didn't have a care in the world. Hooch was always there for Pig, always consistent, reliable. Alcohol didn't experiment, it didn't improvise. It was like a piece of 12-bar blues. You always knew how to find your way back to the one. Alcohol was beautiful, simple, and just like the music he loved. Pigpen had been knocking it back for seven years, and another seven the booze would bury him. In the acid tests, they would come to an end soon enough. But first, Pigpen and the Grateful Dead would find their own personal hell in the City of Angels. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at DisgracelandPod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. 
For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate but not with 80 acres farms their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled going from farm to store in days not weeks they stay fresher for longer in your fridge my salad lasts all week long which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.